0: The scripture reading today will be from Exodus chapter 16. We'll read a whole chapter together. And if you you don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand. Yes, we have Bibles today with us. So our usher will gladly provide you with a Bible. We want you to read along with us. We want you to read along as we study God's word in our sermon. Because it is God's word where we build our life upon. So again, the scripture reading this week is from Exodus chapter 16. Here what the Holy Scripture says. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, "Would that we had died by the hands of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to bring a rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth, sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gathered daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, for, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumbled against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness And behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in a cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. In the evening, quail came upon and covered the camp, and in the morning dew laid around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flea-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is a bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent." And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Sixth day you shall gather it, but on on the seventh day, which is Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gave you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place, and no one go out of his place on the seventh day, and people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which, with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And the Omer is the tenth part of the ephah. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks for all your good provisions. We thank you for providing us with elders. We thank you for providing us with deacons. We thank you for giving us our daily bread, that you know our needs, and you have graciously given us everything we need. So Lord, help us to understand your words today. Help us to see that everything we have is from you, that everything we do is in response of your grace towards us. So Lord, may the Spirit convict us of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a saying, you don't ask a woman how old she is and you don't ask a man how much he makes. Money can be a sensitive topic for many and a, a private one. The ability to make money and the possessions of great wealth can easily become a part of our identity. There's no denying to that. From an infant to our death, we have to deal with money for all our life whether it is to produce or to consume. And if you really think about it, money is just a medium that we use to exchange services and resources. So for Christians, we shouldn't avoid talking about money, thinking that it will be too worldly or unspiritual. Instead, we must let the Bible inform us about money, how we should work for our money, and how we should save our money and how we should trust God with our money. In Exodus 16 today, we will learn from this passage that God graciously provides for all our needs, and all that we have is His, that we are stewards of God's money. And as a steward, we must must seek God's way in how we manage our money and our wealth. So, this will be more of a topical sermon as I will use this text as a foundational piece to provide us with three principles on money management for Christians. Each principle contains two parts one is our responsibility, the other is God's promise that our responsibility is rest upon. So, in t- Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 to 21, After after God hearing Israel's complaint, God sent manna to Israel as a means of provision for them in the wilderness. And by doing so, God established a pattern of working for Israel. And that is our principle number one today on money. We work and God provides. So in this principle, our responsibility is to work, to labor, and to produce goods. And the promise behind our responsibility is this, that God will provide for all our needs. So now let's get into the text to see how this comes about. So the story of Exodus 16 follows the story of God's deliverance of Israelites from the pursuit of the Egyptian army. So God literally split the Red Sea so that Israelites could walk through without any harm, while the Egyptians' army uh, were buried underneath the sea. So songs of praises were written, and the Israelites would celebrate this great feat of God's power in their deliverance. And yet, in, the verse one, in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, after 15 days of the second month after they departed from Egypt, the whole congregation, the whole assembly, grumbled, against Moses and Aaron in the desert, who are God's spoke person. So when they grumbled against them, they're essentially grumbling against God. And their complaint is this in verse 3, that they'd rather be in Egypt where they sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full than being, uh, dying in hunger in the wilderness. I mean, I suppose meat pot and bread to the full does sound pretty nice, except that was simply not true. They were slaves. They were forced laborers for the Pharaoh to, make, to, to build his buildings. Their lives were miserable, and which is why they cried out to God in the first place and why God delivered them out of Egypt, where God would put them into a promised land of milk and honey. But their short-term memory is so severe that soon after God demonstrated his great power of deliverance, they grumbled against Moses and effectively against God. And you see, their grumbling is not against us, as Moses said in verse 8, but against Yahweh, who cared and led for them. And we do that constantly too, you know? You know, we, you know, we say things like you always talk down at me or you never care for my needs. And sometimes maybe we don't say them out loud, but we wallow these lies in our hearts and then we exaggerate a situation to make our point across or to justify our own behaviors even when it is not true. And what do we do in response to endless grumbling from others? Getting irritated You know, we bicker back, or we stonewall. But that's not what God God did. So instead of rebuking Israel in wrath and judgment, God said to Moses in verse 4, Behold, I am about to rain bread down from heaven for you. In the Bible, when things rain down from heaven, what do you think of? The flood? Fire? Locusts? it is usually not great when God rains anything down from heaven. But here in our text, God rained down bread from heaven for Israel. So instead of wrath and judgment, God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. that He, he responded with grace while what they deserved was punishment. So though they grumbled against Yahweh, disregarding every miracle that God has performed to save them and to provide for them, and yet God was patient and he was merciful and he provides for them manna and quail. So indeed, when they looked towards the wilderness in verse 10, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. God provides for their needs despite of their complaints and ungratitude. God provides. And by providing daily bread and meat for them, God also established a pattern of work for the Israel. In verse 4 to 5, Yahweh said to Moses, the people shall go out and gather a day's portions every day. On the sixth day, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. That is in preparation for the Sabbath on the seventh day. So I believe this is the first time since the creation account in Genesis that a pattern of six days of working and one day of Sabbath is mentioned. So in God's providence, men are tasked to work. So whether it was tending the Garden in Eden or gathering manna in the wilderness. So even when food is literally falling from the sky, the command is to go out and gather every day except the Sabbath. So we are to work out of the providence of God in faith. Read verse 4 very closely again. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not see, the work of going out and gathering matters, not merely out of necessity for survival, but out of obedience to God's law. And that is the principle number one in our sermon today. We work, and God provides. Your work and God's provision do not contradict. This is not an either-or scenario. You work out of what God provides for you. So you're not a master of your work, and, you do not, and you're not a master of the produce of your work. God is the one who provides for you, the opportunity to work, as well as the fruit of your work. And just because God provides for you, you are not free from working. You are to work out of obedience to the law of God. And this ethics of working is laid out in the New Testament as well for the New Covenant believers. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 to 13, there's an extensive admonishment for believers to work. And verse 10 to 12 of 2 Thessalonians 3 specifically says this, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So if anyone is not willing to work let him not eat for we hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work but busy bodies now such persons we commend and encourage in the lord jesus christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living so the New Covenant believers are commanded to work and to earn their own living. Now, the New Testament does not specify what kind of work we must do. So you could work for a company, or you could be an entrepreneur, or you could work from your home. As, Titus, as Paul taught in Titus 2, chapter, verse 5, part of the responsibility for wives is to work at home. So this is not a sermon on whether wives should find a job outside or be a stay-at-home mother. But what I'm saying is simply this. Stay-at-home moms work too, even if they're not paid for it. So every New Testament believer is commanded to work, except those who cannot work. So New Testament makes provisions for people who cannot work. For example, widows. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 to 16, Paul writes about how church should care and physically provide for widows in their local bodies, in their local church. But even that comes with qualifications. First, they must be true widows. And that means they are without support of their children or grandchildren. Otherwise, it is the responsibility of the family to care for their parents, and that would be pleasing in the sight of God. And that is, you can read from 1 Timothy 5, verse 4. Also, they must exemplify godliness and prayers and not self-indulgence with, and without repro- reproach, according to verse 5 and 7 to 7. The widows also, uh, also must be less than 60 years of age, So likely the age when women will no longer be able to work in a time of New Testament. So in that time, Paul anticipates there will be those in the church who are not able to work or having a family to support them. So this can also teach us who is exempt from working, not only widows, but there may be people with disabilities who are not able to work. But nonetheless, They are to demonstrate godliness, and they are to devote in prayer, which I know many of you do. And students, I don't have an explicit Bible passage for you about working, because in the New Testament time, you'll be grouped with children, which I know you do not consider yourself as one. So I will say this. Consider your study as work. So study faithfully while you are in school, and you're dependent on your parents for provision. But know that God will use you and your knowledge one day to work, to provide for yourselves and your family. So let your schooling now prepare you to work one day. And for everyone else, if you are able to work, work. For that is a pattern God has set before us. And so far we have been talking about the necessity of work as a faithful expression in experiencing God's provision. Now I want to address those who tend to overwork. Those who overwork neglect God as one who provides for them. In verse 16, Moses says, Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. Ye shall take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tents. So God in his providence commands his people to work and to provide for their family, but enough for the day. Because work is an exercise of faith in the goodness and in the provision of God. And that's why Moses commands them in verse 19 that, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But of course... Some Israelites did not listen. In verse 20, some left part of it till the morning, and it bread warms and stank. They have leftovers because they collected more than what they needed for the day. And Moses was angry with them because in their overworking, they did not trust Yahweh who promised to provide for them their daily bread. So those who overwork can be motivated by many factors. Maybe you want to work more so you can spend more. Maybe you want to work more so you can retire early and be idle all day. By the way, just to clarify, I'm not arguing against retirement or retirement, early retirement. Many people can still be fruitful and productive after retirement. So, quoting John Piper, what I'm condoning here, It's retirement so that you can collect seashells all day. That kind of retirement. It is the overwork for the sake of idleness and lifestyle of leisure down the road that I'm arguing against here. Okay, come back. So others may overwork as an escape from home. Or you may overwork because your performance at work affirms your identity. Or maybe you work overwork because you need to meet the expectations of others. But no matter why you overwork, it reflects a lack of faith in God's providence. You do not trust God. You do not trust that God will provide for you the next day as he has provided for you today. You do not believe that a goodness and a kindness of God will be with you always so that you must work now while you can. And how do you know that you're overworking? See, when your family misses you at home, and they will tell you that even while you are at home, you are more interested to go on your phone, responding to emails and messages from work, than listening to your spouse and your kids. You know, when your family feel like they need to compete with your work for your time at home, You are overworking. You are overworking when your church misses you. Sure, you go to church every other Sunday, but you have not attended anything else. No prayer meetings, no small group, no serving, because you have to work or because you're tired from work. Now you are overworking. And when you put aside your Bible and prayer every morning because you need to get on with your work, and you put them off at night because you're exhausted from work, you are overworking. And of course, I can only generalize here, but if you really want to know whether you're overworking or not, you need good Christian friends, and you need to be vulnerable, to be open with them with how much you're working, and hear them out, let them weigh in, and see. Because whether you're working too little, or too much, it reflects your heart and your lack of trust in God's providence. So friends, work. Work faithfully. Work for your daily bread. And no more, no less. Because God, your God, provides for your daily needs. And we work, He provides. Young adults, I have a question for you. I love picking on you guys. How much are you saving currently? 25%? 10%? Five? Or whatever is left over? Or are you in debt? This is a question you know, we should all prayerfully consider. I have already alluded to this in our first point. But one of the reasons people overwork is that they wanna save up for the future or using their savings as a means of uh, security. And truthfully, there's no golden ratios to how much we should save. But from this text, there is a principle that we can draw from as we consider how much we should save. And that is we save, and God gives rest. We save, and God gives rest. So from verse 20, 22 to verse 30, the narrative focuses, focuses on the sixth and the seventh day. So verse tw- 22 writes, On the sixth day they gather twice as much bread, two omers each. So unlike all the previous five days, when they are commanded to gather only a day worth of manna, on the sixth day is an exception. They are to gather twice as much. And that is to prep, uh, in preparation for the seventh day, which verse 23 explains. And that is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. So bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. And remember what happened when they gathered more than they needed in the first five days? The food bread warms and they stank but not on the seventh day. When they did as Moses commanded them in verse 24, it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. So when when they saved up in obedience to God's word, the food was not spoiled, and it became the provision on the day when they enjoy Sabbath, the day when they are commanded to rest before the presence of Yahweh. And this is the biblical rationale behind saving. It is not for idleness or indulgence because work, as we have seen, is a pattern established by God. It is not a security blanket because God is their provider. We save so that we can devote time in worshiping and in resting in God. We save because God is the one who gives us rest, and saving is a means of enjoying God. So this concept of Sabbath is later put into the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 to 11, and it is continued by Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, verse 12 to 15. And the text in Deuteronomy 5, verse 13 to 15 says, Sixth day you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourners who is within your gates, that your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and a outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day is solemn, it's a holy day. It's a day when Israel ceases to work, but to gather and to worship Yahweh led by their priest. It is a day of rest for their children, for their servants, for their livestock, for their for the sojourners. Because God cares about rest. And the means of God sustaining Israel in their worship, in their rest, is by saving. Right? That's interesting. That's interesting, right? You know, Just like the principle one, we should work because that's the means of God providing for his people. In the principle two, we should save because that's a means of God giving us rest. And this should frame, you know, how we think about saving. We save so that we may rest in God's presence. We save so that, we may, so that it may be the means of giving rest for your family. We save because that's a means of God giving rest to us. So we save out of faith and obedience but not self-dependence and indulgence. Um, So that begs the question for us today. What does Sabbath look like for us now, the new covenant people? How do we know that we are saving out of faith and not a lack of? And what are we saving for? So first, Sabbath for believers today, I would argue, is not limited to one day a week, but it is in the person we rest upon. Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus declares that a son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And for the new covenant believers, we rest not only on the seventh day, you know, the Saturday or the Sunday. Our rest is in Jesus and there's a whole theological system behind this interpretation, but in short, we believe what Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen to seventeen says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There are a sh- these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Sabbath in Jesus means peace and security in Jesus and in his teachings. It means worshiping through God, through the Son, by the Spirit of God. It means spending time with God in his word and in prayer. It means loving and cherishing your families and your neighbors and your church. It means enjoying the creation and everything he has given you with a thankful heart. Sabbath in Jesus It's the rest for our soul on this earth. So we save up our money and our wealth so that we can freely rest in Jesus and give Him from God and not to worry about working on these days. Work and rest. That's a pattern God set for His people. So from creation to Israelites in the wilderness and to His covenant people us now, work, and we rest. But then again, there are always faithless people who are greedy for gain. Verse 27 says, on a seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And in verse 28, Yahweh said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So when they save out of distrust of God's providence, They are disobeying God. What does that look in our life? First, let us examine again what what we are saving for. And as we said, it is not wrong to save for retirement. There will be a time when we are no longer able to work. So whether it's due to old age or unexpected deterioration in our health. So our trust in God's providence, again, does not contradict prudence and wisdom. And just as widows in the early church should be first provided for their, by their family members, saving now to provide for yourself and your family for old age is clearly wise and biblical. But it becomes sinful when we save out of a fearful spirit that you never feel like you have saved enough. You always want to have more in your bank account. You watch the number in your account constantly and its rise and its fall dictate your emotion of the day. You're a bitty and joyful when your investment does well, but you're grumpy and bitter when the value drops. Your mind is constantly occupied by how to squeeze more dimes off your pocket, and you must not miss every single deal. It pains you to give to church, or to those in need. This is my hard-earned money, you think to yourself. Instead of giving away, if I invest in it now, how much more will it accumulate in 20 years? You dream of the day when you can finally spend it all without worrying about it anymore. But you know what? That day will never come for you. You will always worry. You will always be anxious. James 5, verse 2 to 3 warns those who hoard riches. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Or maybe you save so that you can treat yourself. You are generous to yourselves, but you are stingy towards others. You do not hesitate to buy yourself the latest and the best gadgets or expensive clothing and accessories. You have a list of restaurants you want to go to next, and countries you want to visit. But when missionaries and church planting initiatives need your support or people in your church are in financial hardships, you stay quiet or you pretend not to see that email. You may say to yourself, Oh, I will give when I make more money. You know, I can hardly afford this next thing I want to buy. So friends, remember the widow who gave the two copper coins in Mark 2. And what Jesus said in verse 43 to 44. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. And Grace Fellowship Church, I know many of you are examples of generosity and joyful giving. You know, time after time we will receive emails from our elders about an urgent financial need in the church, and you have always met a call so swiftly. You know, how many times has it been now? Like a couple hours after the initial email, we receive a follow-up email from our elders that the need has been met. You brought so much joy to me this past Monday. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was amazed by you. And I give thanks for you all, my brothers and sisters. You know, I do not know how much and who give, but I know that you understood why you save. Because your saving is the means of God giving rest to someone else who needs it at that moment. But I am not naive to know the temptation of hoarding, because that's the one area I personally struggle a lot with, you know, partially due to my upbringing. But Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21 warns me, and he may warn some of you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth with, with, where moth and rust destroys, where thieves break breaks in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also." Have you ever been into a hoarder's home? You know, I've been to a few times in my past work as a community nurse. So as a nurse, I was trained not to judge, but to observe and to assess. But yet, one cannot help but to feel sad and puzzled on their behalf. You know, it's, it's amazing to see how much they can cram into their space, no matter how big or small their place is, at the cost of what? At the cost of actually living in that space. So from the outsider's perspective, it's obvious what they should do. Toss them out. But for the hoarders, what they accumulate gives them peace and security and satisfaction. So friends, when you hoard money for the money's sake, it is no different. You may think your savings will set you up in a better position than others, but truthfully, it will rot and breed worms. They will stink and they will perish by moth, rust, or thieves. So friends, save prayerfully, save wisely, Only do not depend on your savings to bring you peace and happiness, because it's God who gives you rest. Working, saving. The common theme here is that God is ultimately the giver and the sustainer of our life. God is the one who provides for us, He's the one that gives us rest. So whether it is manna or it is money, they are from God and not ours. And that brings us to our last principle. We trust, and God keeps. Verse 33 to 36 is the conclusion of this narrative. In 34, Moses said, Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Israel is to, you know They were to remember it is God who fed them, who gave them the bread throughout the 40 years in the wilderness where they were unable to provide for themselves. And more than a giver, God is also the deliverer who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And each day in the 40 years, they were to go out and collect the manna for the day, no more, No less because Yahweh gives them the daily bread. Except again on the sixth day when they can collect double. So on the seventh day, they may enjoy the solemn rest on the holy Sabbath. So this entire narrative of manna is ultimately about trust in God's providence for them. And God is the one who will keep them and keep his promise to them. And before entering the promised land, for 40 years, Israel must learn that the land is a gift from God. Though they are to work in the land and to enjoy the fruit produced from the land, but they must not forget that the, the provider and the giver is always Yahweh and not the land and not themselves. So it is Yahweh who took them out of Egypt. It is Yahweh who fed them with manna day after day without ceasing until they reach the promised land. Yahweh keeps his promise and he keeps their lives. So likewise, Christians today, as you work and you're safe, your trust is never in your ability to save, to make money, or your savviness to invest and save But it is God alone that we trust. As Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 11, we ought to pray to God daily that give us this day our daily bread. And when you make that prayer, you are exercising faith in God. We believe that God will graciously give you what you need for the day, and you will not receive less than what you will need. From God. But you also believe God will sustain you tomorrow as today, so you do not need more than what you need today in preparation for tomorrow. God will provide for you tomorrow, and he will provide for you every day of your life. And our God has not only given us our daily bread, but he is also the giver of the eternal bread. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to the crowd who followed followed him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the manna from God, not to feed our physical hunger, but a God-shaped hunger in our heart, the heart that longs for our love, for purpose, for restoration in this life. We work, we save, but for what purposes? Without God, what does it all matter? You know, if I ask you, do you know the richest person in the world on the year that you were born? Do you even know who that is? I don't know mine. You probably don't know yours either. What does money, wealth, pleasure, fame mean to us on the day we die? Absolutely nothing. And the only thing that matters on that day is, have you tasted, have you eaten, partaken the bread of life, Jesus Christ? Since Adam and Eve sinned against God and were removed from the Garden of Eden, mankind worked and worked. And their labor is cursed. The land is corrupted. They may not always produce what they sow, and evil and unrighteousness have been rampaging on the earth. Those who sit idly and doing nothing may feed off those who work day by night. And while they, those who are rich may enjoy life of extravagance while doing nothing, and those who work with blood and sweat may have little to survive on. This life is unjust you don't always reap what you sow. And this life is short. You know, so much of it we spend just to work so that we may live. Especially in the city, Toronto, you know, just to have a shelter and bread on the table is already costly enough. And without God, what is it all for? So if you have not eaten the bread of life, consider the futility of your work. And feel the hunger in your heart. You are made for so much more than to just work, than just to eat, to rest, to vacation, and to be back at it again. You are made to be the image bearer of God, stewarding his earth and all his creation on his account, in righteousness and blamelessness. This world is unjust, and the system may be broken, but you and I have also sinned. We have all played a part in this fallen world. You know, we are greedy by nature. We want more than what we need. And we are lazy by nature. We wanna be rich without to work. I mean, the entire theory of revolution is built upon the concept of survival of the fittest. Those who are the strongest and the wealthiest or with the most resource get to pass on their genes. But we are not animals, friends. We are not unlike any other creations in this world. We are made to be the image bearer of God, bearing value and dignity from God, and possessing a purpose and status that was given from God. That we are to be a faithful steward of every dominion on this earth. And we have a hunger, a spiritual hunger, only Jesus can fill. And we have a problem, a sin problem, that only Jesus can resolve. That in our sin against God, only by the blood of Christ that we may be forgiven and be restored and be satisfied. So if you have been hungry for your whole life by living your own ways, come to Jesus today. Turn away from your sin. In faith, you will be forgiven. You will be restored. And you will be satisfied. Because Jesus is the bread of life sent from heaven from God who graciously provided for all your needs. And our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sin and to be re- reconciled to God as his children. So believers, let your work and saving be an expression of your faith in God. You may be toiling your work right now, or you may not earn enough to save you know, after providing for all the necessities of life. But when you do this in faith, God is pleased with you, and he will keep you as he will keep his command. So friends, are you like the seagulls in Finding Nemo, like constantly shouting, mine, mine, (laughs) mine? Or do you realize that everything you have Belongs to God. He has graciously given all your possessions, and He has provided for you all you need. He can generate great wealth in an instant to do great work, but He can also take them away in an instant. You are not the owner and a keeper of your money or your wealth, but you are the steward of God's money. So use them according to God's will. Work, save, and trust God with your money. Let us pray. Father, we are truly amazed at how much you have provided for us. You are a sustainer of life and you are a sustainer of the world system that enables us to work, and to actually provide for ourselves and for our family. But Father, help us to eat and drink, enjoy all your creation with a thanksgiving, and let us mostly remember that Jesus, you are the bread of our life, and help us to live as you are our master, and that we are your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.